Let's now open the Word of God that we may be taught by our Lord. We begin our reading of God's Word in Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs 9. That's uh, Proverbs 9, verse 13 to 18. Just a few verses from that chapter. Proverbs 9, verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So far from Proverbs. Now we'll turn to the New Testament to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 9, and we'll read through verse 19. Here the Apostle Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So far uh, from uh, Romans. Now we'll turn also to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So far, the reading of God's Word. 
As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 12, stanza 1. Over the past weeks, we've been journeying our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going to go now as well, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The verses of our text are Ecclesiastes 7, verse 19, through chapter 8, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Oh, excuse me, we've got one more verse here. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been working through this book of Ecclesiastes now for some time. Uh, the preacher, if you recall, has taken us down some, some hard roads, some difficult journeys, uh, considering some of the hard realities of life. Uh, For example, back in chapter 1, the apparent futility of life. That it seems that whatever we do, it all seems on this earth to come to nothing. He talked about the dead-end roads that we spend much of our lives going down in chapter 2. The pursuits of pleasure or money or uh, other dead-end roads that turn up nowhere. Uh, He spent a lot of time in chapter 3, 4, and 5 speaking about the uh, sovereignty of God. The God whose ways are higher than our ways, uh, the God whose, whose ways are, for the most part, mysterious uh, and unsearchable to us. Uh, and if there's one single message that, that we've been getting all along in this book of Ecclesiastes, one thread that, that works its way through the whole book, uh, it is the preacher is calling us to fear God. Uh, the phrase itself has only come up a, a few times so far. We're going to see it, uh, he's going to land there at the end of the book. Uh, but it's come up a few times, uh, as well as similar uh, exhortations to, to fear God or to entrust ourselves to Him. Uh, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. Because of your inability to make something out of this life, because of your limits and the limits of human wisdom, fear God and trust yourself to Him and He will make your paths straight. We're called to humble ourselves under this God. And one of the uh, effects of this that the preachers highlighted is when we humble ourselves under God, instead of seeking to be God, 
then we can take this life that God has given us as a gift to be enjoyed under God's favor instead of using it to fight against or wrestle with God. We can use this life uh, as a gift for His glory. So here we are then in in chapter 7, and uh, chapter 7 is a book of Proverbs, so we've been slowing down and we've been taking our time as we work through chapter 7. And this is now the third and the last week that will be in this chapter. Uh, You'll remember we divided this chapter into three parts. Part 1 had to do with the theme of endings, the uh, the value of pondering the endings, the ending of your life, or the the natural end or outcome of of your lifestyle, uh, pondering endings. Uh, the second part we saw last week focused on our our human limits, the limits of our human wisdom to search out what God has left mysterious, or to make straight what God has left crooked. Uh, he, he spoke of some of the uh, attempts of human wisdom to manipulate God. Uh, the idea that if we just follow certain rules, God will be pleased with us. Uh, man-made religion that seeks to earn God's favor, uh, a favor and a righteousness that God hasn't given. And he, he shows the, the folly of that life, how that ultimately destroys the, the so-called religious person. Uh, Now in this third section of of chapter 7, what the preacher really focuses on is the reality of sin. The reality of sin in this world. Uh, Wisdom, how does wisdom live in the face of a fallen world? Now the preacher begins in verse 19 with this reminder that wisdom is strength. Wisdom is strength. And perhaps, perhaps the reason we need that reminder is because it seems the preacher has has almost disparaged wisdom so far. Uh, You look back at verses 16 to 18, and he's been saying, don't be too wise, or don't try to be too wise, because you'll destroy yourself. But his point is not wisdom is bad. His point is there are limits to wisdom. Well, now in verse 19, he says, he reminds us, wisdom is strength. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Uh, There is an effect of wisdom that it gives strength to those who have it. Uh, More than power, more than prestige, more than authority, uh, what will preserve a man's life in this world is wisdom far more than than any other strength. Rulers often rise up and then fall down as quickly as they rose up. But there's a constancy and a safety in wisdom. So now the preacher is urging us back to wisdom. He's not saying... Don't, he hasn't been telling us to abandon the pursuit of wisdom, and now he calls us again to that. Well, with that in mind, then, uh, he, he urges us to reflect on how wisdom deals with the reality of a fallen world. Uh, that, that begins in verse 20. Uh, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. No one is immune from sin. And do you recognize this, brothers and sisters, that no one is immune from sin? I know we teach that. That's one of the hallmarks, in fact, of, of the Reformed uh, tradition, uh, the doctrine of total depravity, that, that sin affects everyone, and more than that, that it affects every part of our, our lives and our being. So we, we teach that, but do we believe it in practice? Well, sometimes you might wonder, because it's very easy for us, we put people on a pedestal. And we tend to believe that person cannot sin. Uh, That person cannot do wrong. 
And that's a foolish and it's a dangerous thing to do, to put someone else on that sort of pedestal. It's foolish because we know better, right? Scripture teaches us otherwise, and experience in the world teaches us otherwise. And it's dangerous because when we put someone on such a pedestal, uh, we, we are uh, setting ourselves up to follow them in places that we really shouldn't go, that they shouldn't be going. We're not to put anyone, whether a father or mother of ours, or a friend of ours, or a public figure of ours, on a pedestal, uh, assuming they cannot do wrong. People are sinners. Even the best of us commit sins. And not only that, but sin affects every part of their lives. There's only one who is righteous, and that is God. So that's where wisdom starts. Wisdom recognizes the reality of sin in, in this fallen world. And here's, here's a side benefit that the preacher highlights here. When we recognize this, that no one's immune from sin, that also hopefully helps us to respond to the sins of others with grace. Don't be so shocked when others sin. Don't be so quick to write them off. After all, no one is immune from sin, including you. You do the same as they Uh, So when others speak ill about you, the preacher tells us, don't be surprised. After all, you've spoken ill about others too. That's verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, because your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that true? Uh, I find this particularly uh, comforting as as a pastor because I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes people criticize pastors. Uh, It it can happen. Uh, And going back to the point we just made, sometimes that criticism is well-placed. After all, no one's immune from from sin. Uh, But when we're criticized, we tend to get so worked up about what others have said about us uh, that it it can be all-consuming. And what the preacher says is, don't listen too carefully. Don't listen too carefully to what others say about you because you're going to hear things that you don't like. And I know that because you have done the same to others. You have criticized others unfairly too. So if you're criticized or you hear someone speaking ill about you, take it with a grain of salt. If they said something truthful that you needed to hear, then take that and deal with that before you and God alone. Maybe there is a grain of truth in what they're saying. Then deal with that. Listen to wise criticism. Learn from others. Be humble. Be teachable. But then move on. Don't be worked up to the end about this. Seek peace. Uh, You know that this is who we are. This is the way we are. We criticize others, and oftentimes unfairly. It's what the human condition does. Uh, and so wisdom learns to, to recognize that and then live in light of that without putting too much weight on the words of man. We're, we're trying to weigh heavily the words of God and, and esteem relatively lightly the words of man. If the criticism of others can help you to deal with some things uh, that, that you really can deal with before God, then go and do that. But then move on and do so with a spirit of brotherly love and peace because you know you've committed the same sins against others. Now, having said that, uh, the preacher now also calls us to stop and and reflect. 
Uh, this is verses 23 and, and 24. Uh, he's, he's trying to reflect and, and think through the sinfulness of, of man uh, and the limits of, of our wisdom to even uncover uh, and understand and explain the sinfulness of man. So he says, verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's trying to ask, what happened to this world? Where did sin start? Uh, He wants to uncover it, and he realizes, I can't figure that out. Uh, There's no explanation that that human wisdom can discern for sin. The human heart is impossibly complex. Uh, And the point of of him saying this uh, is really the same point he's been driving home all along in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, trust God, do not lean on your own understanding. If your approach to sin in this world is, I can figure it out. I can come up with an explanation for why people do what they do. Why sin exists. You're going to find yourself utterly, what's the word, befuddled, uh, mystified. Uh, You won't figure it out. You can't get to the bottom of it. Trust in God. Do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, so he's, he also turns then to, uh, to ponder uh, the nature of sin itself in verses uh, 20, verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. To know also the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He's, he's trying to understand sin. Why do we sin? What makes us sin? What explanation can we give for sin And there's a few things the preacher does observe in in that study. Uh, The first observation you notice in in verse uh, 27 and following has to do with sexual sin. He says, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. I should, I should pause here in, in our day, our uh, very gender-oriented uh, day. Uh, the preacher is obviously not saying that all women are like this. Uh, he's, uh, he's talking about a particular kind of woman, uh, the woman who is actually very well known, if you've read the book of Proverbs, uh, the adulteress, or also called the woman folly. Uh, the seductress, the, the woman who takes pleasure in seducing men and leading them to destruction. Uh, and, and we should say on this point as well, something we've said before, whenever Scripture speaks about, uh, uses an image of one gender, say like a woman uh, who is uh, an adulteress and speaks long about her, uh, we remember Proverbs is written to men. And so it's written from a man's perspective and, and if we're people of good sense, we can, we can do the logic in our own heads and recognize there's a corresponding reality. Uh, there is a man who is an adulterer who does the same, uh, taking pleasure in seducing others. Uh, so, anyways, what is striking about this is the way that he describes this seductress as having a heart of snares and nets uh, and having hands as fetters. We've seen this concept before of snares, snares and trap. They, they seize a person uh, who unwittingly steps into them. Well, see, here's the thing. The immoral man, the man who is living in, in what he thinks is sexual freedom, uh, who is either sleeping around or is watching pornography and thinks he's a free man uh, and allows himself to be seduced, he thinks he's free but in fact, he is falling into the very trap that God himself 
has set for him. Yes, God has set it for him. Uh, It's what Scripture says uh, elsewhere. uh, Proverbs 22, verse 14, The mouth of the forbidden woman is, is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. It's a snare that an unrepentant heart stumbles right into, thinking he's free, and in fact falling trapped to his own destruction. This is a terribly frightening reality, really, when we think about it, uh, when we consider how weak and susceptible to this we all are. Now, the one, he says, who pleases God will escape this snare. But the sinner, that is the one whose heart uh, is still given to sin, the sinner will be ensnared by her. Uh, Which means that, as we've seen many times in Ecclesiastes, nothing matters more than getting right with God. Nothing matters more than getting right with God. If you think you can get through this life having a double mind, having a double heart, committed to God, but holding on to sin, you will be ensnared and you will fall and stumble. Uh, do not take your, uh, your salvation for granted. Yes, you trust in God's salvation. Yes, you rejoice. But make sure that every day you are right with God. So there's a, the preacher's first observation. As he ponders the reality of sin, he recognizes sin really is a snare. Sin is a snare that God leaves in this world for sinners to fall into because their heart is not right with God. God has set snares in the path of those who rebel against Him uh, in order to utterly destroy them. And they will run headlong right into those snares. There's more though. Uh, the, the preacher here, is, uh, as he's trying to understand the operations of sin within the human heart, uh, he's trying to search it out. Uh, and then in the end, he, he, he uh, discovers there simply is no explanation for sin. You can't explain sin. Sin is madness. It is insanity. uh, And you can't explain insanity. So uh, verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, what do we do with with this? What does the preacher mean with this uh, one man among a thousand, but a woman I have not found? Well, let me have have a bit of fun with this first. Uh, The most common interpretation, uh, which the NIV also takes, is he's saying, I've found one upright man among a thousand, but I have not found a single upright woman. Now, let's suppose that is what the preacher means. If, If it is, and you find yourself, let's speak to the women here, if you find yourself taking offense at that, uh, I would, I would submit to you that if that's what he means, that there, out, of a, out of a thousand women he has not found one, you probably shouldn't be offended because even if he had found one, it wouldn't be you. At least there's a high likelihood it wouldn't be you. Uh, likewise, for the men, uh, if you're hearing this and, and you're, you're taking pride saying, yes, I knew that our gender was the superior one, you probably shouldn't be taking too much pride because chances are that one in a thousand wasn't you. You are there with the others. Uh, so really, if this is the preacher's meaning, uh, and it might be, uh, then, then I don't think either one gender or the other should be taking offense here. We should probably all be offended by, by what he's saying here because the odds are that none of us are, are the, the one in a thousand. But I actually don't believe that is what the preacher is, is talking about. 
look what he says about searching. It starts all the way back in verse 25. The one common word in this section that he repeats over and over is this searching and finding. Searching and finding. Uh, So verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. To know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So what's the preacher doing? He's saying uh, he wants to find out how sin works. Uh, and what he's saying then here, uh, he's not, uh, when he speaks of finding one man, he, he means finding out, understanding one man's sin. So out of a thousand men, he's saying, I can understand maybe one man's sin. And I can't even understand a single woman's sin. Uh, I'm trying to search out the hearts of people and I'm finding sin to be almost entirely inexplicable. And I actually wonder whether the the one man in a thousand here is actually the preacher himself, uh, writing as a man. I can find, I can understand, find out one man's sin that is my own. And as far as the other gender, uh, I'm absolutely hopeless in understanding their sin. And so then he comes to his conclusion, verse 29. He says, see, this alone I have found. Uh, Notice again that word. This is one thing I have found out, that God made man upright, but man has sought out many schemes. Now there's his conclusion as he studies the nature of sin. Sin is not something we can explain. Sin is folly. It is madness. There's no advantage that sin gets you. Even if you sin your entire life long and get a thousand benefits in this life, then you will afterwards still stand before God who will judge you. Sin makes no sense. It cannot be understood. God made people upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It's an inexhaustible list, too, of the the schemes that man has sought out. Man has perverted all that God has made good. We abuse others. We seek to control or manipulate others. Uh, We establish institutions to assert our authority and take advantage over others. And go to the the headquarters of some of the the bigger corporations and you see the lobbyists uh, working together with government officials. uh, And you you can just marvel at the schemes that man uh, comes up with to take advantage of his neighbor, to get uh, ahead of his neighbor, uh, even at the expense of those who are helpless. We, We justify ourselves. We excuse ourselves. We blame our sins on others. You think of Adam blaming Eve after they fell into sin. We minimize our sin, uh, making it appear smaller uh, than it really is. Uh, We live in a world of lies and excuses of our own making, uh, always reshaping the truth to fit uh, our own desires. Uh, We justify ourselves in ways that we would never justify others. And those are just some of the, the schemes that man has sought out. Uh, and, and in doing, just doing a study like this, reflecting on uh, the nature of sin itself, uh, the, the madness of wickedness, as he says, uh, truly trying to understand the, the operations of sin in the human heart will very quickly take you into a, an, a labyrinth of, of wickedness in the human heart. You don't need to be religious to observe this either. Psychologists, men like Carl Jung, uh, now popularized in Jordan Peterson, um, have have observed the same thing, the the dark side of the human personality. Man has sought out many schemes. 
And when we see all this, we might be tempted to despair and to think, you know, how, how could God have created such a creature as man? And that's actually where the preacher's reflections lead him as well. So his conclusion is, uh, God made man upright. That wasn't how God made us, but man has sought out many schemes. Uh, There's enough we can know about ourselves to know, this isn't the way I'm supposed to be. This isn't the way that God made me. Uh, The knowledge of God uh, and the knowledge of right and wrong, those are still inscribed on the human heart. Paul observes this in Romans 1. Every culture, every people, even the most remote people uh, living in some jungle have a sense, a knowledge of right and wrong, yet we don't do it. Uh, We know what is right, but we don't do it. Uh, It's a a frightening uh, reality as you observe the human heart. Well, brothers and sisters, do you understand yourself to be the person, to be the human being that the preacher is studying here? Uh, Not all of us believe this, at least not in, in practice. It's easier to believe that my motives are mostly good. And we do this all the time when when we get into conflict or when we commit sin. We look on ourselves and we say, yeah, but my motives were good in this. So the preacher says, no, your motives are not only bad, but you are profoundly deceived about how bad they were. Uh, Look at the human race uh, and ask yourselves, are our motives generally good? Are our desires generally good? Look at the wars Uh, the uh, abuses or the genocides or the racism that has pervaded uh, most of human history. Uh, And and look what they testify to. They don't testify to hearts that are basically good, but rather hearts that have sought out many schemes that are perverse. Uh, And so, brothers and sisters, this is the backdrop. when When we see this in Ecclesiastes, this is the backdrop against which we have to see the gospel message. It's only when you understand the hopelessness of man, the helplessness of man, that you appreciate the glory of the gospel. It's to that world, this world of of deceptive, manipulative, self-righteous, guileful sinners that God sent His Son to take their place, to die, to save them, and to make them new. It's this world that Christ came to be rejected by those very people, to be crucified so that he could take on himself the sin or the punishment for sin that they deserve. Consider God's mercy to an indescribably, unsearchably uh, sinful, perverted human race. Uh, Consider, remember too, God is holy. God doesn't look objectively on, on the sin of this world. God looks with great anger on the sin of this world, and even still responds in mercy. And so the gospel shows us, uh, in one singular picture of our Savior on the cross, God shows us God's perfect, holy judgment against sin, uh, punishing humanity for all its evil, and also the, the, the depths of God's unfathomable mercy for such sinners. He shows us far more grace than we would ever show our neighbor and so when we reflect on this, as the preacher does, what's especially striking is, is, is that God, uh, that Christ died not only to, to save us from the guilt of our sin, but God, Christ died to save us from the sin itself. God looks on this world, and His goal is not just to, to, to rescue us from hell, but to make us a new people. 
Uh, as unfathomable as sin is, that's what the gospel seeks to address, to correct in our hearts what we ourselves don't even fully understand. All the misplaced motives, the envy, the hatred, uh, that's what the gospel seeks to address. And just think about it um, from, from God's perspective. Just as we have a tendency, uh, if you can think of someone, if I dare to say this, uh, someone that you, you dislike, you think of someone that you dislike. Maybe it's something they said uh, about you or something that they did. When, when, we, when we hate certain people or dislike certain people, we don't just hate or dislike what they did, but what they did testifies to who they are and leads us to hate them uh, themselves. Well, the same thing you would expect would come from God's perspective towards us. As God looks on us, he sees not just the sin we've done, or the things that we've said, or the things we've failed to do that we ought to have done. But through those, God sees you. God sees your heart. And God sees a heart that is offensive to him. A heart that uh, grieves him. Uh, He doesn't just see sin. He sees selfish, proud, evil human hearts. And instead of hating those people, as he might be right to do, uh, or instead of showing his contempt for those people, as we certainly would if we saw those people and their, and their hearts. Instead, God shows his mercy and his compassion and decides to save those people. And there's even more to the beauty of the gospel, and I'll close with this. When God came to earth to save us from this sin, it wasn't just to, to rescue us and take us to heaven. It was truly to make us new. God wants to deal with, with the profound wickedness of your heart. You see this beautifully expressed in Titus 3, uh, which we read earlier. Uh, There you'll see the same assessment of the human condition as as the preacher in Ecclesiastes gives. Uh, Titus 3, verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The same assessment that the preacher gives. But then the grace of Christ breaks in, verse 4 of of Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, because surely there is a man, there is not a man on earth who does good and never sins. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit poured upon us. Well, this, brothers and sisters, uh, is, is, is what we want to see. Uh, when we talk about the gospel saves, or Christ saves sinners, uh, he doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us from our sin. Uh, he takes what is perverse and makes it upright. He takes the, the many schemes that we've sought out and, and puts in its place a pure heart. Uh, we're saved uh, so, that, uh, so that we might be renewed and, and perfected. Uh, and the process of that begins already here on earth. Uh, the old death, the old darkness that, that the preacher saw, that Paul saw, that lives in our hearts, that darkness is being washed out uh, and the light and truth and pure, uh, purity and holiness of God is being worked in. Now, the preacher uh, back in in, uh, his day could not have foreseen all of this. He lived before Christ, uh, though, of course, the spirit working in him is speaking uh, through him. 
But what the preacher did understand as he reflected on the fallenness of man is that God called us uh, for this very reason not to put our confidence in man, but to put our confidence in God who alone can fix what he has left crooked. Uh, if God alone can make it straight. And, and so already then the preacher's calling us, put your trust in him. It's the same message as the gospel. Put your trust in him who alone can make you straight, can make you right. And, and that's where the last verse of chapter uh, uh, of our text comes, which is the first verse of chapter 8. And I want to just end with that verse. We talked about, a lot about wisdom, how wisdom searches things out. Uh, we've talked about how wisdom sees things as they are, uh, including the fact that none are righteous. No one is immune from sin. Uh, that the problem of sin is bigger than anything we can solve. And so you might think, you might think that true wisdom is probably a very grumpy thing. It's probably a very uh, uh, depressed and, and sour thing. But it isn't. And the reason it isn't is precisely because true wisdom, when it sees our condition, learns to put its trust in God. And when it does so, it brings joy to this life. And that's how the preacher concludes this discourse on, on wisdom uh, with chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The mark of wisdom, that trusting in God, contrary to what we, we might think, the mark of wisdom is not a stern face. It is a joyful face. And we're not talking about superficial happiness, uh, but rather true joy that comes from knowing God is going to make this better. God is going to fix this. God is good. I might not know what God is doing, but I know that God is good and that he will address what I can't address. Uh, the mark of wisdom is a joy that has learned to trust in God. And after all, isn't that the very reason why so many of us are grumpy or are miserable is because we still want to put our trust in ourselves. We think that if people just did what I do or if people just uh, believed what I believed, then they would be better. And we, we, it doesn't work, and so we're, we're grumpy. Uh, wisdom accepts the fact that sin is something we can't fix, but something God will fix and God has begun to fix in the gospel. Wisdom rests in the goodness of God and trusts in the salvation of God. And that makes wisdom a very joyful thing, even in the midst of a fallen world. God's accomplishing His purposes, fulfilling His word, and He will one day make all things new. Amen.